John Doyle leads the Patient Health and Impact Global Healthcare Innovation Center at Pfizer. His team designs new models of access, value-based contracting, and new partnerships across the healthcare sector. Prior to joining Pfizer, John led the Global Enterprise Solutions team at IQVIA, providing technology-enabled real-world evidence platforms worldwide. John also led the Global Value and Outcomes Center of Excellence at Quintiles, overseeing policy analysis, health economics, and outcomes research. John, it's great to have you here at Bio. Thank you, Tony. You spent the better part of a decade working at you know what is considered one of the top-level CROs. Now you find yourself at Pfizer, one of the top global pharma companies. What do you see as the same, and what do you see as different? Thanks for the question. Yeah. Uh, it's been super exciting to join Pfizer. There's a, a, a mission statement that we rally around, and it, it goes like this. We are focused on delivering breakthroughs that change patients' lives. So immediately, that resonated with me mm-hmm. in terms of my public health background and this focus on, on really not just optimizing the research and development of new innovative medicine and bringing it to market, but also focusing on engaging with healthcare systems in new and novel ways to improve population health. There is a similarity to where I came from uh, because at IQVIA, we were using data and advanced analytics really with a, a similar goal in mind. The difference that I, that I saw actually is probably best expressed as a simple metaphor. I felt like I had been doing architectural design work and delivering blueprints for the better part of 20 years on the service side. And and essentially, that's a lot of fun because you get to engage at a very strategic level uh, with clients across the industry, across the globe. But it's Um, really operational. I mean, very much so. It's very much so, yeah. Yeah. And it's um, often after you... Uh, engage at that strategic level and and provide your design, you're not participating in the build. Right. Um, if you get lucky, it works out every now and again where you're you're called in, so to speak, to um, to advise on the build. But for me, it's a tremendous learning experience to engage in the build out of these new designs, if you will, for engaging with healthcare systems, because that's where the the proof is in the pudding, right? Once you get out there and figure out what's resonating with different stakeholders like patients and providers and payers and what's pragmatic in terms of what you can collect and should collect in terms of data metrics, you learn a lot. But you're describing the drug discovery process now as almost a new system. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing systems analysis words creeping in. It's funny how you've come from CROs where you've been very mechanical and technical but now you're looking at a systemic change at Pfizer. Do you think that that's necessary for a platform approach? Is this how it's moving? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And I think that's, um, that's been ongoing for some time on the clinical operations side of sure. the house as they um, optimize the execution and the design of clinical trials with big data and analytics. I think what's happening now that's relatively new is taking that same type of strategic framework and applying it to the go-to-market phase of a product's life cycle. So how do we actually use big data and analytics to solve for broader public health issues that our products uh, can be used within that system, but we also want to understand the system dynamics and find ways to engage in that system to optimize overall system performance. Now, this gets us into what I think is value-based care. I think this is one of the key issues that you are heavily focused on at Pfizer. Can you describe to me what 
your definition is as the lead now on this project? What is value-based care? Sure. Yeah, I think a lot about this and have so for a long time because I think we've had fits and starts in the U.S. on this topic and, and certainly there's a lot we can learn from other models, especially in Europe and the Nordic countries in particular come to mind where I've, sure. I spent some time doing research. But I think of it as using the CMS old mission of the triple aim of improving overall population health outcomes, reducing costs while you're doing so, and enhancing the patient experience along the way. So I think that's a good way to, to think about how we want to achieve value-based care because it's not just about cost. You know, you have to think about the clinical outcomes, you have to think about the humanistic outcomes in terms of how a patient is faring and their quality of life. And I guess what I'm most excited about in that sense is that value-based care now is encompassing these social determinants of health mm -hmm. that we've been hearing a lot about over the last couple of years in the U.S. with regard to CMS experiments around reimbursement and as well as the commercial space. And I think you know, that's where we could start discovering new ways to drive value. Not that we've, we've mastered the traditional metrics around the process of healthcare in terms of diagnosis through treatment and outcome. But I think for many years we've glossed over or largely ignored the other determinants of health and outcomes. And I find now that there's a number of stakeholders ranging from patients to policymakers to payers uh, to providers and the government that are very interested in mining these new data sets to determine how can they actually integrate with the traditional EMR data and the claims data so that we could find and design better interventions to improve population health. So what we're talking about then is moving from efficacy to effectiveness, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the keys to that is having, you mentioned, access to good, robust, clean EHR data. This is what we do at our firm, and right. this is a huge challenge. Right. <laughs> and we're doing it very tactically in a small scale. You're trying to do it at a massive scale. I mean, how is this moving then? How are you getting there? Well, I think there's a, a lot of momentum in, in the healthcare sector right now to integrate data. I think interoperability was a challenge we acknowledged for many years, but now with the advent of some new technology that makes it a lot cheaper, quite frankly, to to house data and integrate data in the cloud, obviously with ensuring privacy, is going to enable a lot of, of new data-driven solutions. And I find that there's an appetite to enhance existing data sets. And what I mean by that are, historically, some of the large integrated delivery networks have fantastic data that is longitudinal in nature and sure. also connects different care teams inside their system. But I'm finding now that these centers are also flexible and, and willing to want to augment their data with additional data sets so that they can continue to, to learn more and get this more holistic view of the patient experience. And that ties back to the earlier comment I made about social determinants of health. So I think using these data and combining not just claims in EHR, but some of these new digital channels mm -hmm. through wearables and sensors and the Internet of Things is going to really unleash a whole new way of measuring value. Because we may have been measuring value in a, in a very concrete way, like something along the lines of reducing days in the hospital. Sure. And that still can be quite meaningful and something that's readily evaluated, so it, it makes sense to measure it. But you know, why not follow that patient home and, and really try to measure in a valid and reliable way how they are experiencing their health? 
and it could even involve going into their space with education and employment. You know, sure. what, what are the things that we're doing in healthcare, including the administration of pharmaceuticals that's enhancing their lives outside of their general health state? Now, we're talking about value-based care and how to value therapies. The session today that you and I are speaking on, we're discussing the International Pricing Initiative of Health and Human Services, where they're basing a basket of countries, 16 countries, Greece, Italy, France, Belgium, Germany, and a whole cadre of others, an average price that the U.S. will then basically be forced to have an average plus 26%. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to do value-based pricing. Do you think that's a good way, John, or a bad way? What's your opinion on that? <laughs> Loaded yeah. question of the day, probably. Yeah, right, <laughs> and, um, and I've been very impressed with the, uh, the data and analytics that you've been able to analyze and, and synthesize in a very compelling way Thanks, that John. tells the story of the unintended consequences of such an initiative. Yeah. Because I, I don't agree with the approach, and, and essentially because it hinges on an assumption that the other countries that we're indexing to have determined a fair value-based price for the products Correct. in question. And I, I would. And it also assumes that they have equal access that we do too. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's right. I mean, there's a whole host of of market attributes that we're assuming are held constant yeah. in that side-by-side -side comparison that would enable uh, an index to work in a fair and transparent way uh, that, that don't really hold water. But the one that bothers me the most is we're glossing over a terrific opportunity to actually focus on value-based price. Like right. why not spend the time and energy and really invite a fact-based debate on what constitutes value? Right. And break it down. Let's look at the component parts of you know, clinical attributes, economic attributes, humanistic attributes, social attributes of value demonstration and value realization in healthcare. And then talk about what level of evidence is necessary to underscore and rationalize those attributes. To me, that's where we should be focusing our attention to get it right in terms of this valuation. So rent control is not the appropriate no. approach? No. <laughs> No, especially with an arbitrary uh, control threshold. I implore everyone to come to our website and take a look at the research, which is listed. Uh, you can draw your own conclusions from the data. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, been an interesting day. It's a profound analysis, I have <laughs> to say. It's, uh, there's certainly some implications there. There's no question about that. Now, but obviously one of the things that the Health and Human Services is trying to address, and we agree with a rather blunt instrument that which they're doing so, the Council of Economic Advisors report last year in February of 2018 outlined the fact that somewhere between 80 and 83 percent of all global profit for new medicines and new therapies coming to market are made in the United States alone. Mm. So the U.S. is overly dominant and is overly represented in the profit of the companies. Is the U.S., from your opinion, subsidizing global health care? And how do we deal with that from a reality perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a, it's a tough one to solve. It's sure. multifaceted. I think when you look at the numbers, it's definitely true that we're helping fund a disproportionate share of R&D, but not without benefits sure. uh, to our society. And we value access, we value optionality, and we value convenience in our society. We pay for that in many other sectors. So I do believe that, that if the free market is working, there's a market-based solution here that will settle on a value-based price. 
And you could see how it's unfolded over the years with generic competition, for sure. instance. You know, I think we lose sight of the fact sometimes that nine out of 10 drugs by volume in the US are generic. And so, yes, we wanna make sure that we're paying our fair share of benefit, but at the same time, let's make sure that we've properly evaluated the benefit before we call a price as unfairly high. If a hep C patient is costing a quarter million dollars over 10 years, which yep. is what they were, you know, that $84,000 is a, a, a tremendous value, but right. the fact is there's an enormous political cost for doing that. And so these become political questions more than actual value questions. Right, and so I think it's, um, it's our job to try to shape that environment to be more inclusive in how we evaluate. And also, let's think about the lifetime of a patient. And I know that there's some complications in following the economics of a patient over time, especially in, in the commercial sector as they change plans every few years. Or move. Or, or move from state yeah. to state. But look, that's on us from a technology and data standpoint to find a way to track patients and then essentially make the appropriate policy and legislative adjustment to enable true longitudinal analysis of value and outcomes. Will blockchain help? I think so. Yeah. I think because it provides at least um, one mechanism to do that in a transparent fashion so that the patient's data and, and the economics that are pinned to that patient experience, whether it be outcomes information or process of care information, can be tracked and shared in an environment that ensures data privacy. It seems to be an unbiased way to track a patient from plan to plan. And Agree. I yeah. mean, I know that there's some interesting initiatives and experiments right now being explored in cell and gene therapy because we're so concerned about the upfront costs of yeah. these expensive the agents. One, the one and done cure. Sure. And yet at the same time, you know, if you look at the downstream benefits and then evaluate them versus either the standard of care or versus no care in some cases, because there's really such an acute unmet medical need, that you need to follow the economics over a lifetime. But isn't part of the problem though with a lot of those evaluations based simply on the blunt instrument of quality? I mean, if you're particularly if you're looking at an adolescent condition, you get 40, 50 years of quality. I mean, these numbers become eye-popping just because of the calculation. Right. It still serves a purpose of being a common denominator that health economists, for sure, understand, <laughs> like yourself. Yeah. But I, I think there's a place for it. But I, I also agree with your point that we have to continue to do better and explore other metrics. You know, disability-adjusted life years is another example, sure. and, and there's a host of others that, you know, let's, let's not just home in and limit ourselves to measuring patient benefit through quality-adjusted life years. Sure. So I think there's room for experimentation there. One subject that keeps coming up is uh, patient cost sharing, the quote-unquote yeah. cost sharing here in, in the U.S., and this is becoming an increasingly hot topic. From your perspective at Pfizer, what is patient cost-sharing and how does it need to evolve in order to make things work better? Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question because I, I feel like that's becoming such a prominent issue right now. In, in fact, around Pfizer, you rarely will hear the phrase access without affordability. Right. Uh, because achieving access upstream, if you will, at the government level of coverage or the commercial payer level of coverage, so inclusion in the formulary, uh, that's a necessary hurdle, but it's insufficient to stop there in terms of solving for optimal patient access to breakthrough medicine. We have to be very thoughtful about 
the hurdles that patients have to overcome now, economic and otherwise. I was looking at some data from Kaiser this morning that a bunch of patients have to abandon medicine because they don't have transportation yeah. to the pharmacy. But focusing on the economics for a moment, you know, with the high deductible health plans increasing, I saw one metric uh, was 250% increase since 2009. Yeah. Um, so these are really coming on strong. We have to be thoughtful about the economic burden to patients and how do we help alleviate that burden as a system. So it's probably going to be a collaboration of more than one stakeholder, payer, provider, pharmaceutical company, government, solving for this issue. Maybe it's paying down catastrophic coverage, enabling supplemental coverage, but finding ways to enable patients to achieve access to valuable breakthrough medicine. And I think if we can come to terms on agreeing what is a valuable medicine, what the framework looks like, and how we, we weight the attributes of that framework from various perspectives, uh, most prominently from the patient, then we should agree, if we determine that this is a valuable medicine at this level, that we should work together to ensure that patients get access to it. How much can the pharmaceutical industry do and what should be its role, given the fact that often a lot of the people that you would have to sit around the table see you as the black hat and the, mm -hmm. the cape tying the woman to the <laughs> railroad tracks, you know, you're often seen as the bad guy. Should pharma take the lead? On it's this? a fair point. Um, we should take the lead, but we need to collaborate. Okay. We, we need to have collaboration with trusted partners, sometimes novel partnerships, you know, un non-traditional partnerships, if you will. For instance, I think that there's room for payers and providers to collaborate with pharma to shape the policy environment to enable value-based healthcare in a way that also solves for access. I also think that there's so many interesting health tech and health financial companies that have popped up in the last few years that are really solving for solutions that are data-driven, sure. where there's, there's really a call to collaborate with these specialists, because sometimes they don't have the same breadth of scope and, and maybe not the same scientific expertise around uh, healthcare or around the medicine in terms of optimizing benefit and risk, but they really have the toolkit to use technology and advanced analytics to enable patients to get better access. So I think that calls for collaboration. I agree, I couldn't agree more. I'm particularly worried in this sector around seniors and out-of-pocket costs for seniors. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the numbers there are eye-popping in terms of when they abandon medicine. I read one stat that a third of seniors abandon their medicine when the copay shoots up to $250 or more, which is a high copay. That number skyrockets to 75% when it's the first medicine. Right. So these are folks who aren't even filling, three quarters of people aren't filling their first prescription when a copay is at $250 or more if they're seniors. That, again, that's on us as a, as a system to solve for out-of-pocket caps for our seniors. If you had one thing you could change, if you had carte blanche, what one thing would you like to change now? What do you think would give you the quickest win? It probably gets to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation. I always like to think of it as root cause. So these are symptoms that we're, we're discussing. It's a symptom that there's high out-of-pocket costs, and it's a symptom that there's a potential unfair index that doesn't essentially evaluate products in a way that's valid and reliable. And I think when you look at the root cause is we have asymmetry 
of information available to the different stakeholders in the system. And where you find pockets of symmetry of information, like in the large IDNs, integrated delivery networks, it gives you hope that this can work well when you have care integration and longitudinal follow-up and evaluation of total cost of care when you look at the price of a drug and evaluate the benefit and sometimes even follow out for the lifetime of the patient in some IDNs, they're able to do that. So my answer to that would be, if I could find a way to scale that capability that we see in pockets at some of our largest and, and best IDNs in the country at the national level, that would solve a lot of the symptomatic problems that we're trying to address today. Because you need access to longitudinal data that also captures not just the process of care, so looks at efficiency, but the outcomes of care and all those other outside the system determinants of health that we were mentioning before. To me, addressing that root cause would solve a lot of the, the health economic challenges that we're discussing. John, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure and I really thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dwayne.